welcome uh, to our last Wednesday of March. Um, I have to say that I uh, bumped the passage uh, just a few verses extra because it really is important, um, as you'll see when we get there. So I'm, I'm sorry, following along, and now you're all disappointed because you didn't read enough. Um, I'm sorry, I do apologize for that. Uh, for those of you who have been thinking about the reading group, we had our March meeting last Wednesday or last Monday, this past Monday, and so we're starting a brand new book uh, for this next month. The meeting is April 24th, and so the book is Where the Light Fell. It's a memoir um, by Philip Yancey. As Maddie said, he looks like a Christian Bob Ross which I guess implies that Bob Ross isn't a Christian, but who knows. So, uh, we are in chapter 21. I think somebody asked me today, did you time this? And the answer is yes. So, um, as I was laying this out and we got closer to Easter, I thought we should do this passage this Wednesday so we get double the fun, double mint gum, double triumphant entry in one week. So get excited. We'll get to see Matthew's take, and then this Sunday we'll get to see Mark's take. And so you'll get to hear my take, and you'll get to hear John's take. Just think, if my name was Luke, then you'd get all four of the gospel writers' take, or at least their names. Oh, we should pray. I got so excited, I almost forgot to pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for today. I thank you for the sunshine. We, um, we come to tell you we're sick of the snow, and so we're done, and you can take that away whenever you're ready. And so we just pray that you would be with us tonight, Lord, as we gather and hear your word and, and also engage with your word and with each other, and we know the value and the importance of gathering together and engaging with your word as a community, and so we try, we try tonight to honor you with that, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us as we engage, and that you would be moving in, in and through us, speaking to us. Um, yeah, be with our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are, uh, as I mentioned, in 21, so last week uh, we finished with the big conclusion of Jesus healing the blind man. Uh, or the blind men, two of them, and Matthew gives us this uh, signature now, when, so giving us a new time frame. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, for those of you who don't remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem uh, for Jesus. Jesus sets their face towards Jerusalem so that he can um, accomplish what he has came to do. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied on and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them 
put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove, all, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning he was returning to the city. As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also, then I will, I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went, and went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward, afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay. So, again, we have this very familiar passage with the uh, entrance into Jerusalem, the Palm Sunday entrance, the triumphal entrance, depending on how you want to categorize it. One thing I, I want to say in, at the beginning here is, as we go, as we move forward towards the end of 
uh, Matthew's gospel, one thing that ha- has struck me is the aggressiveness of Jesus as he engages with the scribes and the Pharisees. And it brings up this very interesting question of Jesus has already predicted his death multiple times. So he knows where he's headed and he knows what's going to happen to him. And so when he takes a more direct approach with the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees or the scribes, is it an intentional provocation trying to entice them to kill him or to have him killed? Because you'll see other times Jesus has asked questions and he is evasive or doesn't answer them. Now he starts to provoke them. And if we would keep reading, in particular, when we get to the woes in 23, he just starts going at them. And it's very, very interesting. Why is Jesus becoming more, as I would say, these are my words, aggressive in his approach towards uh, the Pharisees? Is it because he wants to escalate the situation? Because we know he already has said he needs to die. The challenge becomes, and, and as we talk about tonight's passage, we, we have to wrestle with the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And I can't remember the, the author's name. The book is Anti-Fragile. And he gives this picture of a barbell. And as we discuss these things, if we take a barbell and we overweight one side of Jesus, his divinity, more than his humanity, it becomes very difficult to lift said barbell. So we have to keep an equal balance between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And Matthew is trying to get us to do that. So Jesus doesn't know exactly how it's going to play out in particular, but he knows he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, and so he's trying to make that happen, and he's trying to do it by provoking the, um, the Pharisees or the leaders. The other thing, as we talk about this, we see this big movement of the emphasis on the authority of Jesus. And that's really, as we look in, in this next part of this section that that we're currently in, it is really about how does the authority of Jesus function. And so we start with the triumphal entry. Part of the triumphal entry, or maybe all of the triumphal entry, is about the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem in an interesting way, but also in a powerful way, which is starting to signal his authority within this area. Now, another thing we want to be aware of is if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem at this time, you were under the occupation and the rule of the Roman authority. And so living as a Jew in Jerusalem sounds great, except when the Romans are in control, you aren't in a position of power. And so as we've been talking about throughout this gospel of Matthew, if you have spent your whole life, generations of your family have been told that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will look like X, and X looks like a a ruling authority and a king, 
and now you hear the Messiah has arrived, you are expecting certain things. We've talked about it with uh, John's disciples when they came to Jesus and said, who are you? Is there someone else? So for the Jew in Jerusalem at this time to come out into the street and make a big display of your Jewishness and to make a big ruckus, in essence to create a big, as they say, uh, or as Matthew says, this big stir, one commentator equates it to a protest, you're risking your life and your well-being because the Roman the Roman authority doesn't really want you to be um, taking over the, the city at all. And so all the crowd that starts to come out, they're taking their, a risk. And so when we see the crowd in the triumphal entry, they're all taking this big risk. But first it starts with Jesus sending these two nondescript disciples. Why does Matthew not give us the names of these two disciples? He just says, a general, two disciples. It's interesting. But notice the language that Jesus uses. Again, he, he uses words like immediately. So you go into the, into the village, and immediately you will find uh, not only this donkey, but also a young one with her. Which <clears throat> kind of begs the question, because later it says... Uh, in verse 7, and he sat on them. <laughs> like, how does he do that? I mean, I know he's Jesus, like he's God and all that, but how do you ride a donkey and a baby donkey at the same time? Okay, I was the only one that put a question mark in their Bible at that point. Okay, fine. It's awkward. Russ is like, I've tried it. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> yes, thank you. Thank you for that comment, Mr. Phil. <laughs> um, yes, they do all make reference to multiple, uh, one, may, or one female donkey and her uh, baby, yes. So... <laughs> Um, yes. Yes. Which, it's more of just a phrase. It's not like he literally sat on both of them. Or maybe he sat on them to decide, like, okay, this one feels better. You know, it's kind of like picking a Harley Davidson. Some feel better than others. What? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. So it's interesting because Matthew puts the words of Zechariah into this event. And again, imagine if you are a Jew who knows the, the prophecy of Zechariah and how the, the Messiah is going to ride in, the king is going to ride into Jerusalem. All you're thinking about is, here we go. We're going to take over. We're going to be in power. We're going to have authority. And so the words of Zechariah are, are equated, Matthew is equating them with this, this event, like this is happening. And the crowd responds in a variety of ways, right? Some of them cry out that he is the son of David. 
Well, we've been talking about this phrase over and over. We talked about it last week when the two blind men that stood by the road and they cried, they cried out to the son of David. Here again, the son of David. Again, this kingly language for who Jesus is. That he is the king who is going to come back and bring Israel into its glory days. But notice that's not the whole response. Because the, this, there's this stirring up of the, as Matthew describes, the whole city. And there's some confusion, right? Because most of Jesus' ministry has been out in the countryside. And now he's entering into the city. And so not everyone is on board in acknowledging that he is the son of David. But certainly everyone is interested. Or maybe curious. And it brings up this question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Who do we expect Jesus to be? Or who have we expected him to be? And the people want to know. And what's the very first thing that he does or that Matthew says that he does when he enters into the city? He goes immediately to the temple. Again, he's making this authoritative statement by his actions and his words as he goes in. He does not pass go. He does not collect $200. He just goes straight to the temple. Now, oftentimes when we read this, or sometimes when I read this, we can, our brains get a little bit confused, and we think of one physical building. Like, he's going into this building that is the temple. In actuality, I've not been to Israel uh, or to Jerusalem, but the temple would have been a much larger area. And so as he enters into what is defined as the temple, a lot of it is going to be outside. It's not like it's all going to be enclosed in one specific building. I mean, if anyone would want to go to Israel and would want me to come with them to interpret the Greek and the Hebrew, or at least try, I mean, we could talk about that later, but that's not happened yet. I mean, that'd be kind of fun, like a Timberwood Israel trip. <laughs> I mean, we could just talk about Matthew the whole time. I think we'd be better Christians if we went to Israel together. It's like, if we don't have to come to church, maybe we need to go to Israel. Okay, never mind. So Jesus goes in, and, and immediately we're struck because you know, he starts turning over the tables. He starts driving people out who are selling things. And he turns over the table of the money changers and those who are selling the pigeons. Now, we know that this would have been a necessity, this would have been necessary. Because as you go to the temple, why are you going to the temple? You're going to the temple to offer sacrifices. In particular, going to the Jerusalem temple to offer specific sacrifices. Now, in order to buy specific sacrifices, you needed to have a specific type of coin. And so as you're living under the Roman government, you might not have that particular coin, but you might have a denarius or other Roman money. And so you need to have people who are brokering the, the coins between your Roman money and the money that you need uh, to buy these particular sacrifices. The challenge is what has started out as a good thing, as a necessary thing, has devolved and been perverted into something 
that is extremely offensive to Jesus. Because those who are selling things in the temple are selling them for an exorbitant rate. They're charging more than they should charge. The money exchangers are charging more than they should charge. So what has happened is what is supposed to be this holy process of coming to the temple, cleansing, sacrifice, all that, humanity has perverted. And so Jesus is upset because the people of God have gotten it wrong. They have taken what was meant to be a good thing and they have twisted it to their benefit. And we could just have loads of application around this, how God takes and gives us something good and then we find a way to monetize it and pervert it so that we can capitalize on it. <laughs> Sky Jatani loves to talk about the, the Christian industrial complex. And, and somebody was asking me, like, well, do you not like Christian movies? I'm like, I like movies. Well, what about Christian movies? I don't know. Is it a good movie? Well, but it's a Christian movie. Okay. Like, why do we have to clarify that this is a Christian movie? We do it so that we can monetize it and we can use the name Christian to make more money. And in some ways, that is similar, not the exact same, but it's somewhat adjacent to what is happening here. The people are taking advantage of the people of God by capitalizing on what they need from them. And Jesus will have none of it. And so he says, my house, he quotes again from Zechariah 14.21. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And again, it has us asking, how do we view coming together at this building that we call Timberwood Church? And I know we talked about it on Sunday a little bit, and some people had some fun with it. Do we come together, heaven forbid we would come together as an opportunity for financial benefit and use the relationships that we have within the body of Christ for our own financial benefit? Because that's what's happening here, and Jesus is not happy about it. Notice, though, Matthew doesn't skip a beat. Because he, he doesn't skip a beat, and he immediately goes into this reality that Jesus continues to heal people. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So again, we get this contrast of individuals who are supposed to be doing it right, those people who are functioning in the temple, they're totally doing it wrong, and then we get the people who are rejected by society, the blind and the lame, and they get it right, and Jesus is healing them. And the chief priests and the scribes, again, are not happy. Because the, the cry of the crowd continues, and now Matthew places that cry within the children, which again, how, I mean, how many weeks in a row have we talked about the reference to children and how they fit within the kingdom of God, and we see them being contrasted with those 
other religious authorities. And they're calling him the son of David. And the Pharisees and the scribes are not happy. Do you hear what these people are saying? Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So, Jesus goes right at them. He doesn't make an opaque parable. He doesn't make a specific, you know, like, you know, I didn't really hear your question. He doesn't, well, in some ways he asks them another question, but he gives them a direct answer. And he says, yes, I hear them. And he quotes from Scripture again about how God is going to bring about the advancement of his kingdom. And it's going to come through the mouths of the most unexpected people. So Jesus is confronted by an authority, the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple, and he pushes forth his authority to say, yes, I have the authority to do these things. So we see this continuation of the importance of Jesus' authority moving forward. So he leaves town, but he doesn't go far because he goes to Bethany, which is kind of like a suburb. And in the morning, he wakes up and he's headed back into the city. The most important part of this section is three words. What three words are they? Yes. And we all said, Amen. He became hungry. You're like, Jesus needs a Snickers. I mean, there's consequences when Jesus is hungry. I mean, plants, whole trees are just killed. He curses. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. No figs. You're dead. Tree's dead. Why do you think Matthew puts this in there? Part of it is because he wants us to see Jesus for who he is and that he is a human being. Now, uh, the whole, within the early church, there, there were obviously many heresies that abound, but one of them was that Jesus was not a human being. He just appeared as a human being. And so we see this reference, and for us, it's kind of a passing comment, but in reality, it's a very important statement by Matthew to say that Jesus was fully human, and that he did have these experiences. He was hungry, yes. Is that why he curses and kills the fig tree? No. Did it contribute to it? Maybe. I mean, I've done some things when I've been hungry. And I'm not saying that I'm Jesus, but. So what is it with this fig tree? So he sees this fig tree, it's by the roadside, and there's nothing on it but leaves. Well, the problem is we know at this time of year, because of how the Passover functions, there shouldn't have been anything on it. There should not have been any figs on this fig tree. So why is Jesus surprised that the fig tree doesn't have any figs on it? And why is it that he curses it, and that Matthew condenses this story so quickly, because not all the gospel writers have it happening in such a uh, condensed time. 
why is it that it, it immediately is withered? Well, if we're talking about the importance and the authority of Jesus, Matthew takes this example, takes this story, this happening, and he again further drives home the point. Remember way back when we were talking about Jesus calming the sea, like way back, like last year. Part of Jesus calming the sea was to show that he had what? He had authority and power over nature. And so, again, we see all of these echoes that happen throughout the gospel and throughout the narrative arc of Matthew. And here again, Jesus is seen showing and exercising power over the natural world. Now, what we don't want to do is immediately jump ahead to a conclusion that says, see, Jesus didn't care about nature. Therefore, I don't have to care about nature. That would be a terrible conclusion. Terrible conclusion. Jesus isn't in the business of just like wiping out trees just for trees' sake. This event happens for a very specific reason, and part of it is the authority and power of Jesus over the natural world. And so sometimes, you know, it's like, if you want to make an omelet, you got to crack a few eggs, right? If you want to make a point, sometimes you got to kill a tree, I guess. But Jesus wants to show that he has the power and authority over nature. And then he goes on to drive home his point, as he always does, by talking about the importance of faith. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has happened, what has been done to the fig tree, but even you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Now, does this next sentence sound familiar? And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. And I don't know how many par- people participated in the spiritual uh, discipline exercise of this last week about what do you want me to do for you. But and Jesus continues to make the point that prayer and communication with God, prayer is communication with God, but communication with God is of utmost importance and that God desires to bring about the things that we desire. And, and I know we can, we have, humanity has swung this pendulum so far in one direction that, that we have a whole movement. And frankly, we've also, the church has also swung in a completely other direction where we don't ask God for anything. And so, again, on Monday night, we had this very interesting conversation around uh, suffering and lament and when is it appropriate for me to ask God for things? And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, it seems to be the case that Jesus is inviting the request on a very regular basis. 
Now the challenge becomes, again, what happens when we don't receive those things? Now is Jesus being moderately hyperbolic by saying you can move a mountain, throw it into the sea? Maybe. But what he is doing is he's connecting together obedience and faith. Faith and action are synonymous with one another. So Jesus is saying, as the disciples, again, notice, know where they're going. They're headed towards the cross. They're headed towards the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's constantly reminding them. And this, these words he has uttered almost verbatim before, and he will continue to try to encourage the disciples with. Whatever you ask of me, I will give you in faith. You're going to do big things, he's telling the disciples. And where does he go? He goes back to the temple. <laughs> like, he makes a big ruckus the day before, and then he goes back. And the chief priests and the elders are waiting there. And why are they waiting there? Well, they're always there, but they want to catch him. And notice they use the word, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now again, Jesus intentionally asks this question to provoke them. And he asks about John the Baptist. And that's why I continued, because I had cut us off, not the next section wasn't a part of this, and there's a reference to John the Baptist, so these two things go together. And he says, I, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also uh, will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will all hold that John was a prophet." So Jesus has them exactly where he wants them because he knows that if they acknowledge who John is, then they have to acknowledge who he is. And if they acknowledge that John's authority was from heaven, they will also have to acknowledge that his authority is from heaven. And that is what this whole section is about, is about the authority of Jesus. And he goes right into this story. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he has uh, the first son. He says, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and did the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Who of these two did the will of his father? This is such an interesting question. Again, we're talking about obedience and faith, obedience and action working together, faith and action working together. Because the first son is compliant, but not initially obedient. He's like, well, I take that back. I said that wrong. The first son says, I will not go. He's defiant but then obedient, the second son is compliant, but not obedient. And clearly we see Jesus setting up 
two examples. And he's talking about two clear groups of people. Those who have it right and those who don't have it right. And the first group is the people who say they don't have it right. They say, I will not go. I will not be obedient to you. But then eventually they are obedient. And the other group gives lip service and says, yeah, 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 I'll do what you ask me to do. But then they aren't obedient. And this story is occurring, and Jesus is using this parable to set up the Pharisees because we see this distinction within the crowd and within the groups of people that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew that there are some people who think they have it figured out. The Pharisees think they have it figured out, and they're like, yes, we will be obedient. Except when it comes time, i.e. the Messiah shows up, they're not obedient. And then we have another group of people that is like, I will not be obedient. And then the Messiah shows up, and now they're obedient. It makes me immediately think about how we, we talk in these terms of, you know, such individualistic time frames. You know, I remember growing up, you know, that was the, like the big thing, right? Like, pray the prayer to avoid hell and accept Jesus into your heart. Then you're good. Except that's not the end, that's the beginning. And so Jesus sets up this very interesting contrast of the person who's like, I would rather you be obedient than compliant. Because that's who Jesus references. He says the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who, who don't acknowledge who he is, that aren't seemingly doing what they're supposed to be doing, are the ones that are going to get in first. And those, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones that are seemingly doing everything correctly, are not going to be getting in first. And Jesus paints this very fascinating picture. And part of that picture is this little phrase. And it, it, it had not struck me until yesterday. Because what does he say to the tax, or what does he say to the Pharisees and scribes about their entrance into the kingdom? I'll give you a hint. It's in the Bible. Well, he's talking about the... He, what does he say? Just read the verse. They go first. Which implies what about the Pharisees and the scribes? But they still go. It's not that they're excluded. It's not that they're excluded. And we have this very, very long history and in-depth conversation because when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, and as we've talked through the Gospel of Matthew, 
we enter onto our high horse of Christianity and we condemn the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's interesting because the book that I uh, was supposed, I'm supposed to have read for tomorrow, which I, my meeting is not until tomorrow night, so I still have some time, uh, is about humility. And so there becomes this huge push of anti-Semitism because who killed Jesus? That becomes the case. The Jews are out because they killed Jesus. Except that's not exactly what Jesus says here. And it just, it's been rattling around in my brain ever since it struck me. Because yes, he says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going in first. And then he says, before you, meaning you also will be entering, which has me scratching my head and saying, how does this all work, God? But that's not for us to decide. And why does he make this statement? Because again, he's further driving home the point that how the world sees people is the opposite of how God sees people. You know, we keep beating the same drum over and over because, frankly, Matthew keeps talking about it over and over and over and over. But the people that we think are going to be the most important are actually the least important. The people who are going to be first are going to be last. The people who are the least are going to be the greatest. And again, Jesus says it directly to the Pharisees and the scribes. You think you are so important except you're not. And why is this two categories of people, they function as characters in and of themselves? Because who is a tax collector? Who was a tax collector? Matthew. And, and what are the tax collectors doing? They are often Jewish people who are working for the Roman government to take money from the Jewish people. In essence, they have abandoned their people to work for the man, the Caesar, and so for them, for the Jewish people, the tax collector is the lowest of low, and the prostitutes get lumped into that same category. And Jesus says, you still don't get it. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And that, again, is this reference to seeing. Remember, they've been asking for signs They've been asking for signs and wonders, and, and Jesus is like, no signs and wonders except for Jonah. He's like, you've seen it, and you still didn't change your mind. Which, which provokes this very interesting question. And Adam Grant uh, brought it, brings it up in, in Think Again, his latest, one of his latest books. And, and we've been talking about how the Jews, they, their minds have been set. They've been 
so set and concrete about how God is functioning within the world and who the Messiah is going to be and how the Messiah is going to come and how the Messiah is going to function. And he says, you haven't changed your mind. And the question is, what will it take to change your mind? And it's a fascinating question for all of us to ask. So when we hold particular beliefs, what will it take for us to change our minds about things? And for these people, they have so held this belief so long and hard that even seeing Jesus in the flesh, it's hard for them to change their mind. So the question again is, when we encounter something that challenges our theological conclusions, what would it take to change our mind? You can go to your groups.